Today on Ag News Daily. We get like the total nitrogen, uh, nitrate, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, sulfur, and you know all, all the micronutrients as well. For the plant, uh, we get those nutrient concentrations. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, or good morning, I should say. Delaney Howell here, joined by Tanner Winterhoff on this Tuesday morning episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast, brought to you today by Douglas Plant Health. To unharness your soil's fertility and maximize yield, consider Douglas Plant Health. Tanner, uh, I like recording in the morning, but it, it's still throwing me off just a little bit. Yeah, you've got a routine down. You've got to uh, use different verbiage to get yourself more comfortable. Um, I know, I do. It's a little I still weird. think it's nice to, to it help is. start everybody's day off. I know. I agree. It's a. It was a good, good choice by you. A good recommendation. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Well, at least nobody's told us it's a bad recommendation yet. At least not yet. That's right. Well, how about we start off in Russia? So we've talked a lot, Delaney, about the effects that the invasion on Ukraine is having on Ukraine. But I don't think we've really reported a lot on what's happening in Russia. So we got news first thing this morning that the first casualty of the Russian invasion on Ukraine towards a corporate company is the Russian railways. They have now tumbled into default. They have officially defaulted on their March 14th payment of their bonds. That was supposed to be an interest only payment. Um, due on $268 million worth of bonds, so a rather large size bond system, but uh, they have officially defaulted. Now, according to reports, this is a default, but the Russian railways are stating that um, because of sanctions against Russia, their payment was sent, it was just blocked. So we have one side stating that... um, even though they have defaulted, Russian Railways Railways is saying their Swiss filing in March tried to make their payment, but has been blocked due to legal and regulatory compliance obligations with correspondent banking network sanctions. And they've uh, been a bully for a long time, so it makes sense in my mind, I guess, that they're getting a little bit of a taste of their own medicine with this. Yeah, and what I don't understand and did not get in the article is what effect this is going to have on the railway company. You know, is Mm -hmm. the Russian government going to continue to support this company with the funds necessary? Because with sanctions in place, what does the Swiss credit have for shutting down Russian railways? Because typically when someone defaults on a loan, it begins either a collection or a foreclosure process. But uh, that could be hindered. So this news article might not mean anything, or it could have a deeper meaning than what we're seeing. Well, on the flip side of that, Tanner, you know, we have been talking a lot about Ukrainian impacts. And one thing we haven't really discussed is the U.S.'s response to especially the lack of sunflower acreage that might be coming out of Ukraine, even though yesterday, you know, we saw the the uh, one of the agricultural ministers say that they're going to get 70% planted, which seems a little optimistic. But nonetheless, Ukraine is the world's largest sunflower oil producer, sunflower seed producer. And the U.S. has responded to that and will be increasing acres of sunflower seed production pretty significantly this year, according to a recent USDA report, North Dakota, Colorado, Kansas and Texas are looking to increase 
sunflower acres pretty substantially as well as North and South Dakota. But the USDA is estimating about 1.4 million acres of sunflower prospective plantings, which is up 10% from last year, Tanner. You know, when you said 10%, I was expecting a larger number. Now, granted, that is a significant jump. Um, but based upon the tone of, of that news, I was expecting that to be larger. I Yes, but 1.4 million acres really is not a lot of production of sunflowers anyways. That's true. No, that is very true. The American farmers, and I, I want to start off with this article kind of uh, basing this source. So it is from, uh, from a producing company called Wealth of Geeks and was written by Rebecca Holcomb. Um, but this morning she released that fear is becoming a hindrance in making wheat unsellable in the United States. So I wanted to bring this to light to see if we can get some more information out of our listeners as to how this is going. But it starts off saying that the far-reaching effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, have come with some unexpected consequences to those wheat farmers in the U.S. So they go on to talk about how to grow wheat is one thing and to have a high price on wheat is another. But farmers are seeing here that it might be harder to sell it. So I want to know if this is if this is factual. Are we seeing at these uh, wheat delivery facilities and wheat co-ops that we can't get our wheat exported? You know, the concern here is uh, with the potential, like you said, for 70% of Ukraine's crops to get planted, there might not be as high of a demand for wheat as what's being reported. So America's wheat exports haven't gone up. So right now we're still working on internal uses um, but I, I don't know if you've seen anything else on that, Delaney. It just kind of caught my attention that I didn't realize potentially here in the U.S., even though wheat prices are high, our listeners are having a trouble getting it sold. No, I hadn't seen that piece of news. And I guess I, again, I'm not surprised by that because if you look at the supply chain issues, the port issues that we still have been having, I mean, that's been a, that's been a pretty common one. Yeah, I, I will, I'll put a little responsibility on myself here. I will dig a little bit deeper into this this week um, to see if I can't get a little bit more information for our listeners here. Fantastic. Well, one thing we're maybe not going to see trouble with demand on this summer is biofuels. Yesterday, it was indicated that President Biden is going to give a unveiling of sorts on a trip to Iowa today, and it's speculated that he's going to announce summertime sales of E15 at specifically at a Poet bioethanol facility in Menlo, Iowa, and that is according to some senior officials on his administrative team. He said They said that he plans to use the emergency authority to allow for the fuel to continue to be sold after the June 1 cutoff. But here's the thing that I guess I'm questioning. I thought we already had established that ethanol was to be sold year round. So it was, but I believe it's at the 10% blend. So jumping okay. up to 15, it's an increase of five, at least from the understanding that I have in the articles that I've read is um, there is a time period during the warmer months to where the E15 standard drops down to E10. Uh, but now he is going to use his authority to have that not switch and will continue year round. Got it. Okay. Well, it appears that he is going to make that announcement today, Tanner. So we will stay tuned. 
we should be live on site and record from Menlo. <laughs> well, we could have. I, I didn't know, know that that was happening. So I don't know if we'd get security clearance to go. Oh, we absolutely would. I've gotten it before. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, let's uh, hit some somber news here from the American West. So um, we are experiencing, and I use we as a term lightly, uh, a mega drought. And if you look at the area that I am reporting on, it is the California-Oregon border. So the government is going to begin regulating even back further the amount of irrigation water used in this area. So farms rely on their irrigation and it's been depleted along that California and Oregon border. There are many Native American tribes there, but the reservoir in which feeds this area is at record low levels. So more than a thousand farmers and ranchers who draw from this 257 mile long river that flows from upper Claymath Lake to the Pacific Ocean will now be cut back to using only one seventh of the regularly allocated water uses said the federal agency. So um, this is going to affect mainly salmon farmers Hmm. But there are other growers along this time period. So we're looking at areas of bird flu that may be affecting the poultry market and our availability to get chicken and turkey and eggs. Uh, and then now we may have a little bit of our Western American salmon farmers having an issue because what I learned, Delaney, is flow of water is necessary to move bacteria on or, or not allow bacteria to grow in stagnant water. So where these salmon growers are, they rely on a constant flow of a certain speed or gallon per minute in order to keep bacteria away. And if they can't, that's the effect that will hurt the salmon growing. Okay. And I was curious about that because I also was thinking they're already in water. So how does that work? But yes, that makes sense now. Yeah, it, it was, I kept reading because I tried to, you know, same thing. My observation was, well, they have water, it just might not be as deep. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if it was going to do to overcrowding and it's not, it's, it's due to bacteria uh, growing in their area. And then the second largest crop is going to be potatoes. So they've got about 170,000 acres, again, not a rather large space um, that's usually under irrigation that grows potatoes in this area. Very interesting. Well, Tanner, before I get to my next piece of news here, I want to remind folks that for many years, U.S. farmers in select markets have trusted SP1 as an integral part of their crop fertility program. Today, as fertilizer prices soar and supply chain challenges loom, DPH Bio is expanding access to this trusted biofertilizer, helping growers circumvent supply challenges while improving crop yield and profitability. With Teratrove SP1 Classic, the complete biofertilizer, you can replace up to 50% of your starter fertilizer. Just visit dphbio.com. Tanner, do you know what today is? Tuesday. It is, but it's also a special Tuesday. This is a very near and dear to my heart. I was it's reading. Not your birthday, is it? Well, no, that's no, that's in September. We'll make sure you know when my birthday is. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was reading this morning's magnetic ag newsletter. And today is National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day. And I am a big grilled cheese sandwich person, like fancy grilled cheese where you put like bacon or ham or lots of different cheeses on it. So make sure you support the dairy industry today. What? Hold on. 
how is that a grilled cheese? It is. put something besides cheese in it. Doesn't that become a hot ham and cheese or a BLT if you throw bacon and tomato Mm. in it? No, because I think it's the, I think it's the ratio of cheese versus other ingredients. There is still definitely way more (laughs) cheese than there is meat or other ingredients on it. So I think it's still a grilled cheese. I feel like this could be debated just like the color of the dress was a couple of years ago. Yeah, or is a hot dog a sandwich? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's. But wait, what? why? Would you say, do you not agree? Is it not the ratio of cheese to other ingredients that makes it a grilled cheese? I think it's just cheese. I mean, I I understand that there can be fancy grilled cheeses at some of these restaurants, but to me, a grilled cheese is is a cheese and a sand and bread. Mm, Doesn't okay. matter to me what kind of branded it bread it is, but then it also has to be grilled, buttered, buttered mm-hmm. or seasoned on the outside and on a griddle. Um, no, if you put other meat in it, now it becomes a club sandwich or a panini or something along those lines. Uh, in my mind, that's fair. That's fair. This might be a discussion we need to take to Twitter because. They will all have opinions. I'm in the camp yes, that it is will. still a grilled cheese, but we'll see what our, our listeners say, Tanner. Yes, they will. I just got one last piece um, that I think we're going to have to start watching. It looks like as of this morning, Russia is moving heavy weapons, including missile systems, towards their Finnish border, that border with Finland, hours after Russia has warned them not to join NATO. So it sounds like uh, both the Finland prime minister and the Swedish, I believe it was the Swedish uh, parliament have been starting conversations about taking a vote to join NATO. Now, historically, they've avoided NATO membership because of their alignment, but have maintained an alignment with the West in an effort not to provoke Russia. Uh, But with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they are wanting to uh, obviously make sure that they are considering all their options. But it sounds like even just talks about exploring more has triggered some movement of military items towards the Finnish border. Well, Tanner, as we're talking about things moving towards the finish line, crop progress certainly is not on its way towards the finish line because we are still behind when it comes to crop planting reports. As of Sunday, the report pegged corn acres at just 2% planted, which actually does match the five-year average. It's, uh, I think, next year, the Next week or the week after when we really start to see things may, maybe potentially fall behind. We don't have any soybeans really planted, so nothing of significant note there. And spring wheat was reported at 3% planted compared with the five-year average of 2%. But we also saw winter wheat conditions, just 30% good to excellent and 36% poor to very poor, which compares to the five-year average of usually we're at 53% good to excellent this time of year and 16% poor to very poor. So certainly significantly lower there on the winter wheat conditions. And heading into the opening session this morning, we're pretty much green across the screen in the grain and livestock markets. And so it should make for an interesting turnaround Tuesday, Tanner. Yeah, I would certainly say so. Before we jump into our interview conversation for the day, just a reminder to you that today's podcast is brought to you by Douglas Plant Health. To harness your soil's fertility and maximize yield, consider Douglas Plant Health. It it was certainly one of those welcome sightings after we had our conversation yesterday with uh, Arlen to see what markets were going to do coming out of the overnight. And 
Um, it is being attributed a lot to the EPA announcing that these higher ethanol gas blends will be sold during the summer. And, you know, the potential announcement coming from the president as he visits that ethanol plant. Uh, but could it be traders repositioning themselves in the soybean market to get a little bit of bullish pressure? But uh, certainly positive Delaney to see things in the green this Tuesday morning. Absolutely, Tanner. Let's uh, go ahead, though, and kick it over to our conversation for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday interview. Well, folks, for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday conversation, we're talking with Dominic Levesque, co-founder and CTO of Paquetta Systems. Dominic, thank you so much for joining us today. Yep, thanks for having me on. So, Dominic, I want to talk a little bit about your background before we dive into Paquetta. You are the co-founder and CTO of Paquetta, but what did you do prior to launching this company? Um, so the, I guess the, the very beginning is, uh, so I grew up in New Brunswick, uh, Canada. Uh, it is a, a pretty, you know, small province. I grew up in the farming community of St. Andre, uh, where my grandfather had a, a, well, he still has a potato farm there. Um, so all throughout my childhood, uh, I worked on the potato farm, uh, just, you know, operating machinery and doing some general labor. Uh, and then I went to university uh, to, to become an electrical engineer. Um, so the, quite a quite a big jump from, you know, harvesting potatoes to, to developing technology. But that, that's what I wanted to do. So I went to university, uh, the University of New Brunswick, to study electrical engineering. Uh, in one of my first summers uh, as a co-op term, I worked for a, a pretty big fertilizer company as a field researcher so i didn't stray too far away from agriculture there i i did a lot of uh, you know field research and product trials i uh, did a lot of plant sampling as well so that's uh, a little bit where we got the idea for for paquetta systems that i'm sure we're going to talk about later uh, but yeah after after that summer uh, you know i i did enjoy my job as a field researcher went back to school uh, then one of my other summer jobs was uh uh, I was was working for a startup in Halifax, uh, which is in Nova Scotia, still in Canada, um, and they were doing like remote monitoring of uh, cell phone towers, so a lot of uh, Internet of Things types of technologies, uh, and which is you know a, another aspect of uh, where we got the idea for Paquetta Systems. But yeah, I guess uh, my background is you know started in agriculture, uh, you know, getting my hands dirty with potatoes, uh, then did a bit of field research, and then uh, all technology development from from then on. That It's always interesting to get the backstory of how somebody gets from one potential career or job side of things into the other. But I think you're right. I think the natural next question for you is, how did Paquetta Systems start? Yeah, so it's, uh, I guess the, the story goes back to our final year of engineering. Uh, well, my final year of, of engineering and, uh, you know, I was studying with the other co-founders that, that are in the company. So, uh, Max, Zach and Xavier are the other co-founders. We, we, Max and Zach were in electrical engineering with me. 
uh, we did all of our uh, our university projects from like second year all the way to our final year together. So we knew each other pretty well. Uh, and then Xavier, I knew him from high school. He was studying software engineering um, and heading into our final year, kind of all got together uh, before the school started, I guess. Uh, and we decided we would do our senior design project. So in engineering, you have like a year long project you have to do before you graduate. Uh, so we decided to, to form a team uh, and do the project. Um, and we chose a more entrepreneurial path that you can take at our university. Um, and that, that was so we could come up with our own idea and not necessarily take what our professors were giving to us. Uh, we, we wanted to do something that was our own, uh, something that was interesting to us more than, than, you know, just taking a generic technology project that someone else gives us. Um, but yeah, we, we got together, uh, we talked for a bit. Our, our first idea was to do something in like manufacturing, uh, cause Max had a background in manufacturing. Uh, but then we strayed away from that and we kind of went back to our roots, uh, which was agriculture. So everyone is from the same little region in New Brunswick. Uh, everyone knew about agriculture in our team. Uh, kind of referred back to those experiences of growing, uh, you know, sampling as a field researcher and then uh, incorporating technology to be able to monitor uh, different types of things. Uh, so putting all of those experiences together, we just decided, you know, why don't we do monitoring of crops uh, for growers and why don't we just make the, the whole plant analysis workflow easy for them so they can have uh, you know, better data available to them so they can make some good decisions. Yeah, I guess, you know, combining all those past experiences, uh, getting together with the team, uh, that was like the, the catalyst for creating Piquetta Systems. So you mentioned a little bit there about what you guys do, Dominic. You're working to help analyze basically the plant for growers Tell us a little bit more about how you went about developing that technology and the product lineup that you guys offer today. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess I'll start with the product lineup just to, to give the context. Um, so, yeah, we I guess the, the way we describe Piquetta Systems is that we are a decision support platform for growers uh, and not only growers, but it can be for uh, like, you know, fertilizer retailers. Uh, it can also be for agronomists that manage a few different farms. Uh, but yeah, we're a uh, decision support platform. Uh, and the, the way we enable this platform, which has, you know, growers plant data, is that we have um, this sensor technology that we're able to, to use to scan plants. Uh, right now we're focusing on potatoes, but eventually we would like to expand to different plants as well. Uh, but yeah, we're basically able to take plant samples the same way you would when you do lab analysis of your samples. Uh, we just take those samples, we scan them with our sensor, uh, we get like the total nitrogen, uh, nitrate, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, sulfur, and, you know, all, all the micronutrients as well for the plant. Uh, we get those nutrient concentrations and from our sensor, and we're just able to display them to growers. And from there, they're able to make, you know, better decisions on what fertilizers they should apply, uh, what soil amendments they should do. Uh, we're able to follow fields throughout an entire growing season so they can see how their nutrients trend throughout the summer. Uh, you know, they can identify if certain products work for them, uh, if certain products don't. Uh, yeah, so there, there's a lot of stuff you can do with this type of data. Um, but yeah, right now, that's that's kind of what we offer. We offer the, 
you know, the, the plant analysis part. And we also have a, a nice platform or a user dashboard where the users can actually see their data uh, and be able to, you know, visualize it in a way they, I guess, they haven't been able to do yet. So that's enlightening. And I'm really excited to see you guys expand to other crops because I know very little about potato farming. I'm sure that uh, the data and the information there is is enlightening to the growers to make sure that they are taking care of their plants and react as soon as they can. Uh, is your system available for onboarding? So if someone listens to our show today and wants to learn more about it, are you taking on new clients? Um, so that is a, a tough situation for now, just because um, the, the way our technology is set up is, uh, isn't is like a desktop format. So the sensor technology is not something growers can operate themselves right away. Uh, we are working towards getting it into a handheld format that's easier to use so that, you know, we can distribute it pretty widely. But for now, what we're doing is, um, you know, we're operating the sensor ourselves uh, and we're, we have a lot of clients uh, just in our region. So uh, in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island, uh, which is where, well, we're based in New Brunswick. Uh, so we have a lot of clients in New Brunswick that will go and sample for them uh, and do the analysis and we'll onboard them uh, pretty, pretty, it's a pretty hands-on process. Um, and same thing for the growers in, in Prince Edward Island. Uh, we, we either go sample for them or uh, if they already have scouts that sample for them, they can just bring us the samples. Uh, we do the analysis and we're able to, to display results on, uh, well, th th they are able to be onboarded onto the online platform. So they're, they're still able to see those results. But uh, let's say for a grower in, uh, in, you know, Western Canada, uh, it would be pretty hard for us to onboard them just because we don't have a way to do the plant analysis over there. Uh, they kind of would have to ship their samples all the way over here, uh, which is, you know, it, it's not a whole lot more efficient than just shipping it to to a lab right now. And that's kind of what we're trying to get around. We want to be able to offer, you know, same day analysis and eventually real time analysis. Um, yeah, I guess my, my best answer is uh, we can't onboard everyone yet, uh, but we are onboarding people in that are close to where we're based. Um, and soon enough, once we, we do get the handheld uh, working, then we should be able to to onboard growers pretty much everywhere. Uh, or, yeah, like I mentioned, it doesn't have to be growers. It can be anyone who's interested in, in knowing more about their crops or, or their plants. Dominic, final question for you. As you guys look at some of those things that you're still working on rolling out to growers, what does the future of Piketa look like? Yeah, so uh, the near future is... So I guess uh, we, we've only been established for a little over a year now. Uh, so last summer was a, a lot of uh, product development. So we, we collected a lot of, a lot of data. Uh, we built like our, our minimum viable product. And now this summer we're doing paid trials uh, with the growers that I mentioned from, uh, from well, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. Uh, we also have a, a few bigger industry partners as well, which is pretty exciting to, ha to have them on this summer. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll be going through these, uh, paid trials this summer. Uh, and then after the summer is over or the growing season is over, uh, we'll be starting that handheld development. So we have a, a partner in Quebec City, uh, also in Canada, uh, that does 
you know, development of this very specific type of sensor that we use. Uh, and they'll, they'll help us design a, a application specific handheld hardware so that we can use and distribute. Uh, and then, yeah, summer 2023, we'll be trialing that uh, handheld uh, and also trying to get into different regions. So hopefully we'll be able to onboard growers. Uh, our, I think our next target market will be, uh, you know, Manitoba has a lot of potatoes. Alberta has a lot of potatoes. Uh, I know like a few states like Idaho and Washington, they have a lot of potatoes. So we're going to try to get some uh uh, some of our sensors down there, so we're able to, to at least start showing what the technology can do, uh, try to get a good customer base in, in different regions. Um, so yeah, that, that's, I guess, the near future plans is, is getting that handheld working and just uh, expanding to, to different regions. That is great. And I know you've had a lot of support and a lot of help early on as your company is brand new, but if a listener wants to learn more about you guys or potentially reach out uh, to share in the ideas. What's the best way for them to find you or get a hold of you guys? Yeah. So we do have a, a website, piketta.com. So P I C K E T A.com. Uh, we have uh, like all our contact information there. Uh, and then on social media, you can find us pretty much anywhere uh, at Piketta systems. So uh, same spelling P I C K E T A systems. Uh, that, that's pretty much for, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook as well. If people still, still use that. Um, yeah, that's, that's where we are. Well, Delaney, that was an interesting conversation on this tech Tuesday with Paquetta systems, but I want to know why potatoes get all of the cool stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it seems like there's somebody that we also talked to recently where we were talking. Oh, it was like a spud con. We were talking about potatoes not all that long ago. So I don't know. They must be an up and coming industry, Tanner. Maybe you should look potato into chips, growing potatoes. Fries, yes. Tater skins. All good things come from potatoes. That's true. So it's a good thing we have a technology to make sure that our potato growers are taken care of. Yeah, absolutely it is. And we'll be talking about more technology on the podcast podcast later this week. And of course, you can find us on technology, find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Agnews Daily. Tanner with us, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go.